0: This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com author chris lester. I strive to make this show a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include Strong Language Mature Themes Casual Ableism and allusions to war crimes, including sexual assault. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 321. Hello there, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, your guide to the fantastical world of Metamorph City, you can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction, and tell you what's new with my life and my writing. So let's get started with this week's story. Today, I'm bringing you Chapter 4 of Honor Bound by L.C. Williams. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 318 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. It's the night of the Debutante's Ball, when new lords and ladies are introduced at court and welcomed into Metamore society. Honorhin Bellevue, the daughter of a country baron, is headed up to Hassan Manor, the home of Duke Thomas, the Metamorian Sovereign. She is accompanied by her father, Lord Bellevue, Cousin Tyrell, a decorated general of the First Great War, and Cousin Graham. Tyrell's son and the scion of House Bellevue. On the way to the mansion, Cousin Tyrell told Lord Bellevue that the political maneuvering of the season has already started. The Progressive Coalition took power in the last election, and they are acting swiftly to carry out their intended reforms of Metamore society. For Tyrell, a staunch member of the Conservative Wing, this is nothing short of a disaster. The progressives have already passed a bill in the Senate that would change the inheritance laws for the noble houses, allowing a noble's title to pass to their children regardless of sex, rather than going preferentially to a male cousin. This means that Cousin Graham would be replaced by honor as House Scion if the bill is approved by the Council of Peers. This strikes Tyrrell as so obviously ridiculous that he is marshalling all his connections to try to stop it. Lord Bellevue, for his part, does not voice an opinion on the matter. He is a member of the centrist coalition, and as such, he tries to reserve judgment and listen to all sides before making a decision. While the Bellevues make their way up to Hassan Manor, the Duke's guards are preparing for a busy night. In Chapter 2, we were introduced to one of these guards, Natasha Volkova, an immigrant from the harsh, mountainous nation of Vyesherod. In the recent war, Natasha joined the Imperial Army as a volunteer in order to escape the crushing rural poverty of her homeland. Now she struggles to adjust to civilian life, soothing her nightmares with the attentions of beautiful women, and when that fails, anesthetizing herself with alcohol. Natasha's only real friend is Irene and Ndiaye, A guard of Arambian heritage who isn't bothered by Natasha's thick accent and gruff manner. Irene tells Natasha about the debutante's ball, and that their biggest concern is keeping the young lordlings out of trouble. This will be their first time in public as adults, and for many of them, it will be their first time drinking alcohol. The guards will need to watch out for guests who try to sneak off for a romantic encounter with one of their new peers, which could cause a scandal if it became known. They will also need to keep an eye out for party crashers, pickpockets, and con artists who may try to slip in with the crowds. So, Natasha says, look for people acting suspicious, or in places they should not be. I can do that.
1: Honor Bound. The House of Bellevue. Book One. Written by L.C. Williams Narrated by Vivian Ferrari Chapter 4 Bad Memories The grand ballroom of Hassan Manor looked like it had been set for the world's largest wedding reception. Natasha gazed out at the vast expanse of polished hardwood floor now filled with dozens of large round tables covered in pristine white tablecloths. Intricate floral arrangements stood on each of the tables, sprays of lilies and sweet peas, apple blossoms and baby's breath, ranunculus and dogwood, all of them in spotless white. Garlands and bunting adorned the walls, also mostly white, but accented in the patriotic imperial colors of blue and gold. Intricate mobile sculptures of wire and crystal hung over each of the tables, and minor enchantments made them glow from within, so that it seemed like the room was filled with tiny floating stars. In the middle of the room stood an enormous ice sculpture, twenty feet tall at least, depicting three attractive young people facing outward amidst a dreamscape of flowers, trees, and abstract crystalline spires. One of the figures was a lady, in a low-necked dress with a corset and a broad-flowing skirt. One a gentleman, dressed in long coat, waistcoat, cravat, and trousers, with a neatly trimmed and pointed beard. And the third was an androgyne noble, barefaced, with a corset worn over their long-sleeved shirt, a lacy cravat, kilt, and knee-length stockings. Natasha marveled again at this peculiar facet of Metamorian culture— made possible by the ancient curse that lay over Metamore Valley and the nearer provinces. The shape-shifting androgynes were almost unknown in Natasha's homeland, but here they comprised nearly a quarter of the population. She had served with a number of androgynes in the war, and in general she had found them to be a pleasant, gregarious, and unfussy people. Still, It seemed odd that those who could take the form of man or woman at will would mark themselves as something apart from either. Or perhaps it is not their choice. She looked again at the sculpture of the gentleman, with his finely groomed beard. An androgyne certainly wouldn't be growing one of those. The hairs would vanish every time they shifted. Volkova! The bark of her captain's voice drew her away from her musings. She turned and made her way to one corner of the room, where the other guards were congregating in a loose half-circle. She fell in beside Irene and turned her attention to her commanding officer. Captain Lars Hansen was a bear of a man, literally. He stood six and a half feet tall, must have weighed over three hundred pounds, and was covered in a thick coat of cinnamon-brown fur. His face blended the features of man and beast— with round ears set high on his head, small dark eyes, and a long muzzle filled with frightfully large teeth. The ruff of fur around his neck stuck out over the collar of his uniform, completely hiding his cravat. Hansen was a theriomorph, the second of the three variants of the Curse of Metamor, and, like the androgynes, he carried his magical heritage with pride. There were hundreds of varieties of theriomorph in Metamor, and together they comprised nearly a fifth of the valley's population. Some of the template species had long associations with the great houses, the horses of House Hassan, the rats of Clan Matthias, the foxes of House Brightleaf. Hansen was a commoner, though, and had probably chosen his curse as a reflection of his own self-image. Certainly the grizzly bear was a fitting match for his personality. Right, then, he growled, narrowing his eyes briefly at Natasha before turning back to the group at large. Wizard Ereba and her squad are screening the guests at the gate. When they're cleared, they'll be let into the entry hall to mingle. They can go to the first-floor washrooms, but apart from that, they're to stay in the hall until everyone's assembled. At eight o'clock, we'll queue them up for the receiving line and open the doors to the Duke's audience chamber. The Heralds will announce each family— They'll be greeted by the duke, and then they'll take their places to either side of the chamber. Once everyone's been welcomed, we'll open the doors to the ballroom and lead them in for supper. Again, they can leave to use the washrooms, but keep them away from the rest of the house. When they're done eating, it's out to the rear gardens for champagne while the servants clear out the tables for dancing. That's when you'll really have to watch them. It'll be dark and there's loads of places for couples to sneak off and be alone. Private conversation's fine, but if you find them doing more than holding hands, usher them back to the group. Dancing starts at 11 and goes until 2 a.m. Some will leave early, especially the older lot, but you can expect to lead some people off the floor as the musicians are packing up. Hansen paused, his eyes flicking back and forth among the guards to check for comprehension, Natasha raised her hand, and he nodded curtly. I was told there may be party crashers, she said, enunciating her words carefully. What should we do if we find one? The captain gave her a grudging nod of approval. It happens, yes, he admitted. Not every year, but more often than I'd like. He directed his attention back to the group at large. If you find someone acting suspicious, detain them and send for backup. Be discreet about it. This is the first big event for our dear young lords and ladies. You don't want to ruin the party for them, all right? There were scattered nods and murmurs of assent. Natasha didn't know what the word discreet meant, but she thought she got the gist of it. This ball was very important to the Duke and his guests, so intruders must not be allowed to spoil it. So discreet probably meant something like thorough. She knew what detain meant at least. More than once, she and her drinking buddies had been detained by the M.P.s after a night of carousing. Hassan house guards didn't carry manacles like the M.P.s had, but Natasha could be creative. She certainly knew how to tie people up, though admittedly that experience came from a more recreational context. She thought back to her last encounter with Josefina, remembering the feel of the ropes as Natasha drew them tight around the sensualist's body, the way her breasts had stood out as they were squeezed by the coils above and below. She had moaned so prettily as Natasha pinched and sucked her nipples. Volkova! Irene jabbed an elbow into Natasha's side, and she jerked her attention back to the present. Hansen was looking at her. Judging by the impatient expression on the bare man's face, he had noticed her mind wandering. She wondered, with a sinking feeling, if he had said her name more than once. Sorry, sir, she said. Hansen's eyes narrowed. You're in the East Wing, he said. Conservatory, trophy room, washrooms. Watch the door between the conservatory and the gardens. Aye, Captain, Natasha said. Hansen turned to Irene. In DIA, you've got the East Wing Library, Study, and Drawing Room. Mind the servant's entrance to the kitchens. His eyes flicked briefly over to Natasha, then back again. Be ready to help where needed. Yes, sir, Irene said. She did not look at Natasha, kept her eyes straight ahead, but she knew what Hansen meant, as surely as Natasha did. Don't let the new recruit fuck things up. Hansen turned his focus elsewhere, continuing to hand out duty assignments. He must have been at it for at least a few minutes before Natasha had noticed. She remained stiffly at attention, her cheeks burning with quiet humiliation. She hated being seen as the screw-up, as the one who needed extra minding. She'd been a good soldier, damn it. She had the medals to prove it. She would have spent the rest of her life in the army if they'd let her. But Havain had ruined a lot of good soldiers. Havain was what had given her the nightmares and the tremors and the flashes of rage and the bad thoughts that were only silenced when she was deep into her cups or in the arms of a beautiful woman. Officially, it had been the incident with Major Rutgers that buried her career, but that was only the last nail in the coffin. It was Havane that had dug the grave. Being a house guard was supposed to be a fresh start for her. It was supposed to be easy. She had all the things she appreciated about Army life. Structure, routine, consistency, room and board someone else to manage all the little details of living that she'd been so hopeless at organizing for herself. Social interactions with others were predictable, and mostly limited to the same small group of people. Just as importantly, the bad things about army life were absent here. There were no enemy soldiers shooting at her, no trenches, no gas, no barbed wire, no friends and comrades going into the ground. There were no weeks of terror when the supply convoys had been delayed, and you weren't sure whether you were going to run out of food first or bullets, and you wondered which would be worse. And there was no God's damned Major Rutgers picking out villagers like fish at the market, no teenage girls stumbling home the next morning with tear-stained faces and bruises purpling their wrists and throats. Natasha abruptly realized that her jaw muscles hurt from clenching them so hard that her fists were shaking with remembered rage. She closed her eyes and forced herself to breathe, slowly, deeply, in and out. It was supposed to be easy. What could be easier than looking after a family of pampered nobles in the safety of their own home, in the heart of the richest city in the richest nation in the world? but somehow she kept getting it wrong. She forgot things, large and small. She drank too much, slept too late, pissed off Hansen when she couldn't understand what he was saying. The captain thought she was a simpleton, a big, dumb, ignorant foreigner, still useful only because she was strong and intimidating. Sometimes, Natasha feared he was right. The captain was wrapping up. "'It'll be a long night,' he told the group. Stay alert. These are the little darlings of the Metamore Peerage, and this is their first time in the limelight. Let's make sure they stay out of trouble. A few knowing chuckles ran through the group. Dismissed. The guards headed off to their assigned posts. Irene and Natasha walked side by side across the ballroom, toward one of the three doorways that led to the east wing. Are you all right, hon? Irene asked in a low voice. Natasha reached up to run a hand over her face, a habitual gesture, then stopped when she realized that would probably spoil her makeup. Fine, she said. Irene did not look convinced. You looked like you wanted to kill someone. Just... bad memories. The shorter woman nodded slowly. I can imagine, she said. Natasha crooked one eyebrow at her. I hope not. Irene conceded this with a wave of her hand. She had never been a soldier after all. After a moment, she said, Well, if you ever need to talk about it, I'm here for you. Whatever it is, you don't have to face it alone. Natasha looked away again. Thank you, she said. She felt Irene's eyes linger on her for a moment longer, but her friend let the matter drop. In truth, Irene was wrong. Natasha did have to face it alone. The terms of the settlement forbade her from discussing the Rutgers affair with anyone. That was the deal. An honorable discharge in exchange for her silence. Either that, or court-martial for attempted murder— never mind what Rutgers had been doing, until Natasha stopped him. No, she would deal with the bad memories the same way she always did, the way everyone back home in Vyashrad did. She would bury them down deep in her heart, until she couldn't hear them scratching at the floorboards anymore. And if that didn't work, there was always alcohol.
0: And that's the end of Chapter 4. Come back next time, when Honor meets a few of her fellow debutantes. Chapters of The House of Bellevue will be released once per week for 51 weeks. If you're enjoying this story and want to listen to it faster, the entire series is available now at Amazon and Audible. To learn more about these characters and their world, visit www.authorlcwilliams.com. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. This update covers the week of March 19th through March 25th. I wrote 2,226 words this week, over the course of 2.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 809 words per hour. I wrote on 4 out of 7 days this week. This week, my writing plans suffered an unexpected mishap. Our storage tent, where we keep our lawnmower and other gardening equipment, suddenly collapsed after a heavy spring rainstorm. With more bad weather in the forecast for later in the week, Mel and I had to put all our other plans on hold to deal with the emergency. Over the course of Sunday and Monday, we moved the wreckage out of the way, bought a new shed, assembled it with the help of some friends, and got all our equipment safely inside before the next bout of rain arrived. It was long, exhausting work, and it didn't leave much time for writing. There's still a lot more work left to do to clean up the mess, so I expect we'll be equally busy next weekend as well. I did make a little progress on Out of the Shadows during the week, as well as working on the script for the podcast. The end of the story is in sight, but I find myself creeping toward it at a glacial pace, which is frustrating. Another source of frustration this week was my advertising campaign for the House of Bellevue. After some promising numbers on the first day of release, sales flattened off sharply. The ads were getting a decent number of clicks, but most of them weren't leading people to actually buy. As a result, I was spending about $5 on Amazon for every dollar of ebook sales. Facebook and Instagram ads couldn't be directly linked to sales, so it was hard to tell if they were making a difference at all. Page reads in Kindle Unlimited and audiobook sales made up for some of the ad spending, but even if every dollar of sales could be directly attributed to the advertising, I was still barely breaking even. By Wednesday, I had spent close to $300 on ads with little to show for it. Because of this, on Wednesday night I made some changes to my advertising plan. I put the Facebook and Instagram ads on pause, reduced my daily budget for Amazon ads, and cut down on the number of keywords I was targeting. Nearly all of my ebook sales were attributed to just one search term lesbian romance. People who searched for other terms, like fantasy romance or lesbian fantasy, might click on the ads, but they didn't end up buying the books. My hope is that by zeroing in on the search terms that lead to sales, I can get a better return on my advertising investment. Check back next time and I'll let you know how it's going. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show... Send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author chris lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamor City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out.